Hello everyone and welcome to episode 285 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderful, supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Books, not Adaban Book, Adaban Cypher Book Series. <laughs> I did that well, didn't I, Al? It, that was, honestly, I feel like that was possibly your best intro ever, Valerie, <laughs> ever. We just, we've got this down pat, haven't we, after 8 million thousand episodes, you would think that we would at least have the names of the books you correct You would think. It's because I've not fully caffeinated this morning yet. Oh, why not? As we're recording this. Oh, because I just haven't had the time to drink my, co- my tea, actually. Tea. Oh, okay. Anyway, um. How are you, Al? Well, <laughs> I am fully caffeinated. I've had my two, I have two in the morning. Like I, I light them very close together, back to back, and then I'm done Do for the day. Do you make them yourself? I make one myself and then mm. Procrasty Pup and I have one as we walk the streets, <laughs> you know, as we tramp the streets. You well, mean he while he you're doesn't. walking? Um, sometimes while I'm walking, sometimes it depends on who I run into at my at my favourite ca- coffee spot. Um, so if there's people there, I'll sit down and have a chat. But if they're not, then we just walk and I drink I my coffee as I walk. I can't do that because the coffee spills out of the little hole. Well, uh, you must be a very <laughs> violent walker. A bouncy because, walker. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that bouncy. I mean, I just I'm just like wandering along, and I actually really I actually really like it. So the builder. Mm-hmm. Because we'll often go for a walk on a weekend and stuff and grab a coffee and he likes to sit with his as well. Yeah, like he's too. a sitter. Yeah. Yes, but yeah. I actually really, really enjoy walking and no. sipping and just, yeah, and I really like it. it. There's something about it that sort of makes the whole experience broader for me in some Do way. Do you know what my biggest bugbear in life is? This is related. Okay. <laughs> I know, like, it's not, I know this is ridiculous that this is my biggest bugbear in life. Yeah, it's okay. My, it's my current thing. It's when you see actors on TV shows drink from the, you know, plastic, uh, the disposable coffee cup, and clearly there's no coffee in it. Okay. Because they're not, this, it's not. Are you convincing. serious? This is a big bugbear. Oh, my God. It was like five times I counted last night while watching TV. What were you watching? Um, actually, even... an interesting show called Press. It's on um, Oh, yeah, Fox I like Girl. it too. I yeah. like it as well, yeah. And so, anyway, if, if for listeners who don't know, it's set in a tabloid newspaper in London and which is very nearby the highbrow newspaper and it's a very interesting story. But, anyway, that, journalists clearly drink a lot of coffee because there were five times I counted and there should be other things in the world that I worry about, I know, mm-hmm. that they yep. are, that the actor is drinking from the coffee cup and clearly there's no coffee in it because okay. of the – the way that you put it down and the sound that it makes and and mm-hmm. the the angle to the mouth, it's like mm-hmm. it's <laughs> you okay. think I'm nuts. I actually I honestly am sitting here just going, I seri I be, honestly, I can't even begin to imagine why you would even notice that. But whatever. Like, you know, I feel I understand because people's the small things that annoy people are, are are often very, very individual, shall we say? And this is clearly very individual because I honestly can't remember the last time I saw someone drink from a disposable coffee cup on television. And they're clearly doing it all the time in press and I haven't even noticed. They even do it in Game of Thrones, so 
Well, yeah, that's true. You know, that's a whole other story, isn't it? Anyway, but, okay. but uh, one thing I am – the other thing I'm doing, can we just – let's let's actually yes. move on to okay. the world right. writing Sorry. a little bit, yeah, mm. um, is that we have launched the, um, just in the, the last, you know, few days the um, – the website for the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers Festival. Oh, yes. Yes. So that's very, um, very exciting. Very, and very you exciting. Are the director of? I'm the director of the children's program for the festival, which is, you know, very, very fun, um, but also incredibly, like for someone like me who, like, let's face it, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, it's an, I'm an interesting mix of things and I always have mm-hmm. been because mm-hmm. I was a sub-editor before I started, you know, um, on, on, on uh, magazines, before I became a features writer on magazines. So in many ways I do have that detail aspect. I, I am a pedant in some ways. Yes. But I do struggle to sweat the small stuff. So when it comes to actually, like, if you, you don't even begin to understand how many tiny details are involved in the organisation mm. of a festival until you are in the middle of organising the festival. Yes. And so there are just, like, my days are full of, of, uh, of admin stuff, which mm. is, is, you know, a good learning experience for me in some ways. But also it just drives me crazy in others because I just feel like, okay, whatever. Can we not just, you know, get a couple of authors there and and um, and let's get on with it? Um, but no, <laughs> that's not how it works. But I am really, really excited because uh, this year we're focusing on a children's festival only. So we're going to do a big festival every second year because we have, you know, a small team of volunteers. Um, the date for it this year is the 26th of July is the schools program. We're going to take our authors, who I will reveal in a moment, to, uh, to four local schools, which is brilliant. We're sponsoring the visits and then on the Saturday we have a full uh, a full program Um, I'm doing a workshop if anybody's in the area in the Shoalhaven area and they would like to send their uh, their nine to thirteen year old to do a writing workshop with me. Um, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes and things like that, and you'll find them. You know, Google it; it's online. Um, then uh, that would be great. It's a very limited workshop, twenty kids only. Um, we're doing an illustration workshop, and we are bringing the wonderful Jacqueline Harvey to yes. the Shelhaven area, which I'm really excited about, and the incredible Jack Heath as well. So it's like the J8 Festival yeah, of well, Authors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, both of them are rock stars. Both of them yeah. have sold millions of books. Um, and I'm just, I'm really excited about being able to, um, you know, for the kids in this area to be able to meet them, to be able to be inspired by them. And um, so, you know, it's a, the, the, the small stuff, the small, those tiny details do grab me correct drive me crazy but the big picture of it is you know just bringing that joy of books and reading to to the area so I'm you know I'm all over it that's what I'm doing absolutely brilliant and Mm. we'll put the link in the show notes but if you want to have a look it's the show it is shoalhaven readers and writers festival dot com dot au and if you haven't been to that part of the world it is lovely so maybe make a trip out of it yes why not bring the family come and meet me I would love to see you yeah, very cool, very cool. So no doubt you have been busy. But you have. have an interesting link for us this week, don't you, Al? Uh, I do. Look, I just want to give a shout-out to Lauren Keegan. Um, hello, she Lauren. Is, hello, Lauren. She is a member of our group, um, The of course, the So You Want to Be a Writer uh, podcast Facebook community. Um, and she so every Wednesday we have Writing Wednesday post where you get to share uh, your latest, you know, post, a blog post related to writing um, in the group, which is brilliant because it not only does it allow, you know, 
our, our community to see what you're up to, hmm. but it allows me to see what you're up to. Um, and as I am the person who runs the Writers' Centre Facebook and Twitter social communities, et cetera, um, pages, it's it's great for me to be able to share, you know, share some really good posts. Now, Lauren wrote a post uh, a few weeks ago called um, – is your writing commercial enough? And, um, you know, how do you know if your novel is commercial or marketable? And I just thought it was a really interesting post and I thought I'd put the link in the show notes for people to have a look at Um, because Lauren had been um, working on the first draft of her latest manuscript and she was kind of like writing the thing and then she had a listen to our interview so, mm. so You Want to Be a Writer podcast gets a shout-out, which is very exciting, um, with the wonderful Fiona McIntosh. Now, it was a very, very, very good interview, that one, um, and I say that because Fiona was great, not because I was great. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> although, you know, what am I saying? Um, you know, she has uh, – Lauren was saying that she listened to that interview and she, she is currently writing her eighth manuscript. And she says she had written seven manuscripts prior to that to this current one, and every single one of them had straddled genres, um, Mm. which wasn't particularly new information uh, for her. But having listened to Fiona's uh, interview, she realised that um, it allowed her to see her work more clearly from a marketing viewpoint because Mm. Fiona is, of course, very, very candid about, you know, she writes commercial fiction, she is writing for a market, she understands precisely how her books fit into that market, and then she uses that to her advantage. So Lauren um, sort of like had a listen to those to that interview, took on board a lot of what was said, bought uh, Fiona's book, which I have also read, which I can't remember the name of, oh, this I do, it's called How to Write Your Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And um with that in hand, went through her manuscript and, and and worked out where her book fit in the market, how she needed to narrow that angle. And I think that, look, it's not – it's the kind of thing where I think every – doesn't matter what you're writing, you need to think about the market a bit. I'm not saying that you need to write specifically for a, a niche in the market necessarily, but you have to have an understanding of how the market works and where your book is, is going to necessarily fit onto the to the bookshop shelves. And this comes down to how you're going to pitch your work to a publisher, how you're going to even to what category are you going to put it on if you're if you're indie publishing, what mm. category are you going to put it in on Amazon so that your ideal readers can find the book. So I, I just thought it was a it was a great way. Um, I, I really liked the fact that Lauren had listened to that interview, taken on board so much of what um, Fiona had said, and then she has she has written a, a really good post in response to her reaction to that. So I just wanted to draw everyone's attention to it, have a look at it, but it's just something to think about when you're writing, not your first draft necessarily. Like I personally think get that first draft out exactly as you think it needs to come um, in your head. But once you've got a, a sense of what you've got on the page, you've got to think about how you're going to pitch it and you've got to think about where it's going to go and who you're going to submit it to. So you need to think about where it's going to fit into the market. Yep, absolutely. And of course, we'll put that link in the show notes, which you can find at so you want to be a writer com.au and if you're not already in the Facebook group which Alison mentioned then it's free to join we'd love to have you as part of the listener community just search for so you want to be a writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join it will we'd love to you know chat and have you in there 
All right, so let's move on to something I wanted to talk about, which was I was reading a manuscript the other day. Uh, it was actually like a, a fantasy uh, manuscript, and um, it was I was go I was be really being carried on in the story, and I was it was flowing, and I was compelled. I wanted to keep on going, and then suddenly it was boom. I was just jarred out of you know when you're in the world, you're in a world, right? But I was jarred, I was pulled out of that world because I kind of went, oh, something's not right. And I realised it was because the author, the writer, had suddenly switched point of view. So they were in the protagonist's point of view. Um, you don't have to be in the protagonist's point of view. You can be in another character's point of view, but he, they were in the protagonist's point of view. And suddenly they had changed into someone else's point of view that was in the scene. And it was really, very jarring to, for that to happen mid-scene because that someone else started describing things, it's kind of like describing the protagonist. Whereas mm. the, whereas, and, and it's such a common thing that we see in, in new writers in particular is that they write really well, but the thing that they haven't quite nailed just because um, they haven't really thought about it perhaps is making sure that they're in the right point of view for that particular scene. Is that mm. something that you notice and experience in, in manuscripts that you read and writing? Yeah, it is. Well, because, you know, I, I tutor um, in both the creative writing yeah. and the writing for children and young adults uh, courses for the Australian Writers' Centre. Um, and I would say um, probably particularly in the writing for children and young adults uh, course, it's something that I that I see a lot because, you know, if you are writing a book from the perspective of a ten year old, mm. you have to stay in that in that perspective, yes. uh, in that point of view. So when you're describing things, you have to describe them in a way that a ten year old, like you've got to think about the life experience involved here. You can't sort of be bringing in abstract philosophy for a 10-year-old, exactly, you know, unless your 10-year-old is a particularly unusual character. But you you have to think about what how do 10-year-olds think about things? If they're going to if they're going to use a, a um you know a metaphor or a simile or whatever, is there it's it's going to be it's going to be like a, a fortnight reference. It's not necessarily going to be a poetry reference, if you understand what mm -hmm. I'm saying. You've got to stay within the life experience of the the character that you have. If your kid is 10, they have to stay 10 the whole time. Um, yeah. And that is something that a lot of people struggle with because when you're writing as an adult and obviously you, you bring your wealth of adult experience to everything and obviously mm -hmm. you need, you know, there needs to be a level of sophistication in the voice and things like that, but you've got to remember that the character is 10 all the mm -hmm. time um, and that's not always easy. It's like what, how do 10-year-olds see the world? What kinds of, of references would they use? If And this was something I found quite interesting, of course, when I was writing the Mapmaker Chronicles and, and things like that. So I had Quinn, who was the, you know, obviously he has the photographic memory, but he's mm. seeing a whole range of things for the first time. He's, you know, travelling around the world. He's seeing things for the first time. He's seeing things that the kids who are reading the books know what he's seeing. Um, yes. But I've got to describe them in such a way as being like relevant to that fantasy world, yeah. relevant to Quinn's point of view and still giving enough information so that your contemporary child knows that he's describing an elephant, et cetera, et cetera, you know, without just saying what it is because, of course, Quinn doesn't know what it is. Mm. Um, and there are – so there are a lot of challenges in that kind of thing. And the other thing, of course, that we see a lot of is, is um, 
you'll see where you'll be talking about a first-person point of view um, and the character is going along nicely. And then suddenly, you know, there'll be, and uh, my face blushed bright red. Well, you can't see your face. You don't know if it's bright. You can feel Feel the heat rising in your face. You can't see it. So Mm. there are a lot of little there are a lot of little places where you can slip in and out a point of view without even realizing that you're doing it basically. Absolutely. And I also want to address something because some people think that you have to write in the same point of view throughout the entire book. Now, some books you do write from the same point of view yeah. for the entire book, but some books, uh, you know, different chapters are in different points of view. Um, Leanne Moriarty is a great example yeah. where uh, in many of her books she writes from different characters' points of view in different chapters. Um, Matt Nabel's, uh, you know, we interviewed Matt Nabel a while ago. His yeah, book, yeah. guilt was in multiple points of view. So definitely you can write in different points of view but you certainly don't chop and change mid-scene. Um, no. And sometimes what you can do though is is start a scene or chapter or whatever from a much broader point of view from an almost omniscient point of view but then hone in into a more close focus whether that's first person or third person limited point of view but the the key then is not to suddenly come back out again you've got to stay no and choosing and that's the other thing too that I, I just had this challenge as well is choosing choosing the point of view are Mm. you going to be first person are you going to be third person because you know if you're writing in first person you have the benefit of immediacy of emotion of uh, this is why a lot of YA is written in first person because you are feeling everything the character is feeling you are right inside their shoes but it's really limited because you Mm. can only see and know what your actual first person character can see and know whereas if you write in third person it allows you um more space within like you can have third person clothes like there's a there's a there's a world of point of view options available to you and what I found recently was I was writing a manuscript and I started writing it out uh, writing it in the third person perspective uh third person point of view of one character and then I realized that I needed I was going to do uh, the third person, so it was a two-hander, third person of a of a different character, and I realised that actually I want that wasn't working because I wasn't close enough to that character. Mm. So that character needed to be first person. So then I was like, well, can I do just the whole book in that in that character's first person? But I couldn't because that character didn't have enough agency to be able to get all the information that I knew that I was going to need. Yeah. So I ended up doing both. I ended up doing the book um, with a one first-person point-of-view character and one third-person point-of-view character. So the whole book is from the perspectives of two characters but but different point-of-view. And that was a bit of a challenge. It's been interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the point-of-view is such a foundational part of writing. It is so important to get it right because you could be a great writer and write beautiful sentences and have a really, really good story but if you don't get point of view right or if you accidentally chop and change or don't can't recognize when you're not getting it right then that's the end of that <laughs> if you mm. know what i mean mm. so of course one of that's one of the things we recognized and so we created a course on point of view so it's called fiction essentials point of view because it is an essential in fiction and it launches uh tomorrow actually so the day after mm. this episode comes out so it launches on the 19th of june make sure you get in early uh it's it's i've been through the whole course myself it is absolutely fantastic and it'll help you nail point of view forever so um 
yeah, check it out at writercenter.com.au slash POV, which of course is point of view. <laughs> <laughs> all From right the department of the bleeding obvious <laughs> yes that's right let's move on to a competition this week we have three copies of the one by australian writers center alumna kanina may Woo-hoo. and she has written a sparkling debut novel where the quest for love will surprise you on the wrong side of 30 or are we on the wrong side of 30 <laughs> no we're on the right side of 30, babe. Of course. On the wrong side of 30, Bonnie Yates wants a happily ever after. Problem is she keeps choosing the wrong guys. Um, unable to shake her inappropriate feelings, Bonnie flees, becoming an unlikely contestant on a popular dating show, The One. Working behind the scenes, Darcy Reed is a driven young producer dealing with a tyrant of a boss. Despite being surrounded by love at work, her own love life with long-term boyfriend Drew is floundering. Penelope Baker has relocated to a small seaside town to hide away with her secrets and nurse a broken heart. But with The One beaming across the nation's televisions, she can't seem to quite escape the life she left behind. Before cameras roll on the final ceremony, all three women will discover just what they're willing to do in pursuit of The One. Well, there you go. So if you want to win one of three copies of this cool book, go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 24th of June. And if you're listening to this episode in the future, don't worry. worry. Go to writercenter.com.au slash win and there will be another fabulous competition for you to enter. All right. Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? I'm ready okay it's misogamy m-i-s-o-g-a-m-y misogamy sounds like you're mispronouncing misogyny it does doesn't it but i'm not Mm -hmm. yes i'm not mispronouncing misogyny misogamy refers to the hatred of marriage whereas misogyny refers to prejudice against women. Yeah. Mm, interesting, Ooh. right? It's not the a very hatred of user. marriage. Yeah. Wow. I know some people who are misogamous. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all know some people who are misogamous. <laughs> <laughs> They're also probably possibly some of them are misogynists too. But anyway. All right, let's move on to uh, who's our writer in residence this week? Oh, I'm actually quite excited about this. So I had the opportunity to interview the American novelist, Peter Rock. And regular listeners may remember like 8 million episodes ago approximately, um, I was talking (laughs) about a book that I had received from Peter Rock and um, the fact that so he um, he's based in the US. He's based in Portland. He is from uh, he grew up in Salt Lake City, but he ended up in my uh, English class when I was sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so my year eleven English class, um, Peter and Peter was out here on exchange, and so we shared we shared a classroom, an English classroom for a year, and uh, our teacher Mark Miller. Um, and so it was like, like this weird thing we were discussing how random it was that we had both ended up, um, you know, being authors, et cetera. Um, and Mark Miller, the the English teacher, is also now a, a published poet. He had a poetry book come out earlier this year. I think it was like his third or his fourth. So, you know, you would think 
wouldn't you? Like, like this we, this little regional high school was like a hotbed of <laughs> of writing talent for this one year. Um, and so, yeah, I spoke to Peter about his his new novel, uh, which is called The Night Swimmers, and it's probably the most personal novel he's done. So it was quite an interesting one for me to read because it's described as an autobiographical novel, which is a term that we do discuss in the mm. in the um, in the interview, um, but it was quite strange for me to read it because it's set not that long after he was uh, he was out here in Australia, and so the young man that he you know writes about, who is obviously fictionalised but also almost himself, um, is uh, was very I could see him, and it was so it was a very strange as he says you know I think people that know him reading the novel would have quite a different experience to people who don't know him. Anyway, we had a lovely long and involved chat, um, which I hope you guys will really enjoy. Peter Rock is the award-winning author of 10 works of fiction, including My Abandonment, which won the Alex Award and was adapted into the film Leave No Trace. He is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship and is a professor of creative writing at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. His latest autobiographical novel is The Night Swimmers, out now with Soho Press. He was also, randomly, my Year 11 classmate at Nara High School. Welcome to the program, Peter. Oh, thank you so much. I don't think it was random at all. Well, it's pretty random, like the fact that you were there. Oh, you think that was... It was destiny, I think. Destined. I like that. That's good. All right, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Your first novel, This Is The Place, uh, was published in 1997. Can you tell me how that came to be about, how that came to be? Um, How I wrote it or how it came to be published? Both. Give me the whole kit and caboodle. Oh, it would be a long story, but I would say This is the Place um, is probably the seventh novel that I wrote. Um, And so when I'm advising young writers now and when I'm teaching, um, I think I had so many advantages. And one of them was I was just really delusional. (laughs) I I had parents who, you know, didn't put a lot of pressure on me or who, who... gave me free reign to do as I liked. Um, so I had a, a number of different jobs, but after I got out of college, after I got out of school, um, I was just traveling around trying to write, and I was writing terrible, terrible books, and I was working different jobs. I was working as a security guard in an art museum, and my girlfriend and I at the time went our separate ways, and so I had no home. I had a truck, and I had a lot of books, and I... I was able to live in a little adobe house, which was about 10 by 15 feet, um, that was owned by a friend's mother. Um, And I decided I'm going to try to figure out what kind of book I could write that would play to my strengths. So it's a very voice-driven book as a novel told by a 75-year-old blackjack dealer who was trying to create miracles for a young Mormon girl. And I grew up surrounded by Mormons in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I was sort of writing um, with this hope that Mormon girls were dissatisfied and that someone like me might have answers, um, <laughs> although I was quite quite young at the time. So it was um, quite a, a long process. And I was fortunate that um, I, I got a fellowship. I went to Stanford University right after that. And... I was able to get an agent who was just starting out and also an editor who was just starting out. And it was a very small, um, a very small book deal. And, you know, the book came out in paperback and 
I think maybe it did okay, but it was such a different world back then. I've been so aware of it now, um, over 20 years later, that um, you know there was no Amazon, there was really no internet, um, there was so much more money really in publishing. To be honest, there was just I was going on book tours and I was sort of being paid for different promotional things I was doing, whereas now. Um, you know, the money is so much less or the amount of pressure on the author to do the promotion to, um, you know, be writing things for free and to be online and to be sort of out front. Uh, but that's that's been a real change. But back then, uh, I also felt that I deserved attention in some way that I'm not quite sure I feel now. Like, I felt very entitled and I wasn't even aware of it as entitled people do aren't aware. And so I sort of felt like I could, I would write something to the best of my ability and the people would be interested in it because I was interested in it. And I'm not sure I believe that anymore, but, um, I think it was a, you know, when I tell the story, um, I always, you know, say once upon a time, I thought that I was just incredibly talented and worked very hard. And then I started to recognize that I've been lucky at different times and I had met different people who had helped me. Um, but then I realized a lot of it has to do with privilege. You know, I was, I, I managed to get through school without having any debt. I had, you know, a family that supported me and allowed me to sort of wander around saying I was a writer for a period of time. Um, it was really, you know, I was, I was 30 years old or so before I published a book. So um, it was fortunate that I was able to continue on in that way because not everyone can. No, and fortunate that I could be persistent. And when did you actually, so at what point did you write your first novel? Like you said that This Is The Place was your seventh. How old were you when you wrote your first novel? I think I was in college or what you would call university, um, and I was about to graduate, so I was about 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would written a lot of stories, and I thought it was about time for me to, to write my first novel. Um, and it didn't go very well. Okay. Um, and nor did the successive novels go very well. Okay. But I think, I mean, even even the ones now which are published, I mean, as you as you know, they're so dissatisfying in some way. There's always something about a book that you finish that you recognize is problematic or that you're unhappy with. It's 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 cause enough to try again, and so that fortunately is what happened with me over and over again. And had you always known that you wanted to be a writer? Like, you know, you said you sort of like it was time for you to write a novel at 22. That sounds to me like someone who'd been thinking about it for a while. Yeah. Um, I think the answer is no. Um, I think that I liked the idea of being a writer. I really loved to read. And I think, especially when I was in high school, a lot of the a lot of the writers that I was reading, whether it was Jack Kerouac or, or Richard Brodigan, their lifestyle kind of appealed to me and I could see myself as a sort of whimsical and, and romantic, um, young man who, you know, played a lot of billiards with women (laughs) and sundresses and drove back and forth across America. Uh, but I just like the idea of being a writer as, as an identity, which isn't really something I think exists. Um, and I followed my education in such a way that I was sort of unqualified to do anything else. So I eventually had to start writing things. And then I found that I really loved it. But to back up a little bit more, I think when I when I went to Australia, I was um, you know, I was thinking about going into medicine. 
I really did like to read, but it was really um, our teacher in common, Mark Miller, who, mm. you know, really pushed me and said, you, know, you, sh- you could be a writer, you should be writing. And I would always say, well, we- we're not writing stories now. That was two weeks ago. And he said, no, you should be writing all the time. <laughs> and that made me, you know, that I-, I think a lot of about that. I think a lot of it as a, as a teacher of writing, I think the advice that I can give is rarely right or wrong, but the attention you give to someone or the encouragement you give can really make a difference. So that for me was, you know, the first push that I had. But again, I think I really liked to read and I really liked the idea of being a writer and it caused this momentum in me Mm. to, to keep after it. So it was. Inter- I think it's interesting because you you have taken, as you said, you know, quite an academic approach to becoming a writer. Like you've kind of t- taken yourself right. down that road, studying the craft at various universities, and now you teach it yourself. Was it deliberate to do that, or just the way it turned out? Like, did you feel like you needed to go and study all of the things before you started writing yourself, or or just the way it turned out? It's. It seems like it's the way it turned out. But I think there's also a, a narrative of my career where I was much more of a desperado, and I did not um, like I don't I don't really have the degrees I should have to teach the way that I teach, uh, and it's because I never really went to graduate school as we call it in the U.S. And it was because I often was around people or I was dating people who were writers who were in programs, and. So I was sort of suspicious of what could be learned in a writing program or what could be learned from a teacher, but I still reaped the benefits of being in touch with other people who were writing and being in touch with people at magazines. And so eventually I sort of, I backed into teaching, um, I think because someone was hit by a car actually. (laughs) It wasn't you, was it? (laughs) No. I had a book published, and, and at San Francisco State, they, that was the requirement. And so I, I began teaching in a graduate program, but I didn't have the degree. And that, I think, is maybe a sign about graduate school, or was to me, that it's harder to publish a book than it is to get a degree. And mm. so once I started teaching in that way, I couldn't really go back. Mm. Uh, but it, but I think I've, I've tried to have it both ways. You know, I, I clearly am a professor at this point, and I'm very sort of suspicious of, of the idea that certain things can be taught. Mm, okay. So what's your process for writing a novel? Where do you begin? It always changes. You know, it's sort of um, it, every, every one is so different. But I think one thing looking back at them that, I, that they have in common is I'm drawn to some thing. I'm drawn to something outside of me that I don't understand. So in the case of, say, my book, My Abandonment, I read a newspaper article about a father and his young daughter, who was 11, um, living in the wilderness who had been discovered, and then they were relocated, and then they disappeared again. And so I wanted to find out, because it was close to where I lived, I wanted to find out exactly where they lived, and I wanted to find out what had happened to them, and I couldn't find that out, so I started to make it up. Mm. Uh, Similarly, when I, I worked on a ranch in Montana, and in Montana, there was a church that believed the world was going to end in the early 90s. And I lived sort of as a neighbor to them. And they built underground shelters and they prepared for the end of the world. And then, as far as we know, the world didn't end. And I became really interested in them. So I started studying their beliefs and I started. So usually what I'm trying to do um, 
it harkens back also to when I was a security guard. I would I would make up stories for the art that I was guarding as a way to pass the time. And so the, the book I published before The Night Swimmers was a collaboration with photographers, which is called Spells. Mm. And I was very directly choosing a photograph without having any context for that image and trying to figure out what I thought could have happened there, what what might happen. So often what I'm doing is I'm allowing my curiosity to draw me into a situation, and then I'm hoping that something comes out of me that is surprising to me. And so when I talk to my students, I say, you know, if there's something out in the world that seems like it's calling to you, it's because there's something inside of you that is that is resonating with that thing. Mm. So a lot of it is um, following my curiosity, and I think being both inevitably getting older, uh, having children, and having written a series of books, I'm much more open and I'm much more comfortable in chaos. And so early on, I tend to have a lot of notes that have no connection to anything, and I don't know what's going to happen in the book or who the characters are. I tend to have, you know, maybe a couple hundred pages of notes before I start organizing them, and then I eventually type them into a computer, and then I do a lot of writing longhand. So, so down in my office, I don't have any machines, and so I'll print out all my notes, and then I'll be organizing them on, and then I'll write everything longhand, then I'll type it again. And it's back and forth um, um, during the day to different parts of my house to try to try to sort that out. And then I would say with most novels, it's probably about 50 percent preparation and then about, you know, 10 percent actual writing time of getting that draft together. And then maybe 40 percent or more just revision. And that can take years to figure out what's going on. So most books I write tend to end up being about 230 pages. And at some point, some of them have been over a thousand pages. There's just just trying to figure out what belongs to something is really the crucial question. And it's such a um, it's such an intuitive feeling, but it takes a period of time for me to sort that out. Okay, so The Night Swimmers is described as an autobiographical novel. Um, So does that just mean it's you and it's not you? I mean, is there a line where the reality of this, your story ends and the story of the novel begins? There probably are a lot of lines, but they're very blurry. Um, it wasn't my, it's not my, it's not my term, autobiographical mm. novel. <laughs> but it's certain, I will say this, like it certainly is a different book to read if you know me in real life than it is for a stranger. Mm. Because there are, you know, pictures of my children in the book. There are references to people who I know I think I always sort of assumed that I would change everyone's name once I published the book but at the last minute I decided I would just leave everyone's name (laughs) (laughs) it felt kind of wrong but it felt kind of right for the process and I um I guess a, a couple of things I would say is I and you probably have this experience too you know when you write enough books you sort of can forget what happens in them um, and I, when I look at, say, this is the place, I, I recognize that the, even the sentences are not sentences I remember writing. Yeah. They're not written in a way that I would write them now. Sort of like another person wrote them. Mm. And that said, when I look at books that I wrote before, I can remember that period of time in my life. And if I actually read the books, 
I can see in a way that I didn't know then what I was dealing with, what I was processing, what were the big questions for me. Mm. And I think we also have the experience when we're writing something that our day-to-day life starts to infuse that project and also starts to echo it in, in eerie ways. And so I sometimes keep track of this. With this book, uh, The Night Swimmers, I started writing it um, because there's a scene in the book where I'm in this little shack where I used to live, and and I find myself surrounded by rejection letters from magazines and different things that I'd hung up on the wall in 1994, and also being there with my children and feeling like these were the artifacts of someone who I had been, but I no longer was that person. And I couldn't remember a lot of things from that time. And so I started reacting, instead of reacting to photographs or a news story, I started reacting to pieces of my past that I couldn't really account for. And so as I was writing the book, I started keeping track of conversations that I was having with my daughters, which seemed similar in some ways to questions I was investigating in the book. And at some point I thought, what if I included these things? And then I decided I would start doing that. And then it seemed almost as if people from that period of my life could feel that I was thinking about it and started to contact me in various ways. And so I started to include that also. And it started to get very messy. So I started seeing that It wasn't that they were similar things to the story I was telling, but they were the same thing, that they were all connected in in a way that, and I was curious about that. And I was curious, too, about the distinction that we make between our internal life and our external life. And so when we talk about dreams or when we talk about daydreams or when we talk about fiction, even, we we often append um, a just fiction or just a dream um, when I think that the things that didn't happen or our daydreams or our fantasies are things that are very much who we are. Um, And I decided to not make that distinction in this book, to not, you know, say, you know, what, what if this happened? Or if I imagined a story based on what I didn't understand at that time, this is what it would be. Uh, But rather let everything have the same truth value and and never interrupt myself and so i think hopefully that's not the primary pleasure of reading the book but i think you know there was a time when i thought i didn't want anyone asking that question but i think that's impossible especially the way that that the publisher talks about it but um when i started being kind of more open to that or even putting you know photographs in or referencing real parts of my life in a more direct way um and, follow, and following it, too, you know, just sort of being open to new experiences. Say there's a part in the book where an ex-girlfriend of mine contacts me and says that she's been floating in an isolation tank and had these visions of me from a previous time. And I decided to take that as a cue that I should start floating in isolation tanks also. And it's a book about water. It's a book about swimming in open water and it made sense to spend all this time floating in in this black water and to allow that as sort of a a way for the story to begin to coalesce. And and so much of this 
book came together as I was floating there, imagining different possible connections. Yeah, the description of you floating in the isolation tank is actually incredibly powerful. Like I, I, I felt like I was there, and the the way you described the you know, that sort of almost out-of-body experience with your body melding into the water um, mm-hmm. was quite extraordinary. But there's an awful lot of, you know, the process of this that you're describing, there's an awful lot of deep diving self-reflection, you know, examinations of, you know, mm-hmm. time and place and people. And was that, you know, as a writer, was that interesting in a kind of like looking at all under a microscope kind of way? Or was it painful or was it you know, it's a, I think diving into ourselves is actually one of the places that a lot of us go, like won't go, let alone embrace it in the kind of way that you have. Um, so uh, yeah, like, I just think it's a, what was the process? Did you feel like you were looking at yourself from the outside or were you deep diving on the inside? I think it was a little bit of both. It was very, um, I think I've always prided myself on not being an autobiographical writer of sort of, you know, when I had friends who wrote books that were based on their lives or their parents' lives, um, I thought it was sort of, it just demonstrated a lack of imagination in some way, um, not to judge anyone. And so I was always writing stories about people who are quite different than I was. And that said, when I look at books that I've written before, they're very personal books. You know, they're very much taking up the things, as I said, that I was sort of struggling with at that time. And I think I've always been a better writer at writing characters who are further from my experience because when I do that, I have to convince myself that I know that person well enough. I have to convince myself of what's important to that person and how their voice works and how their life is playing out. And in convincing myself, I'm also convincing the reader. So when I teach nonfiction writing, I find often that the facts of the life are interesting, but the writer just assumes that everyone feels them the same way that they themselves do. So they don't do that work to sort of convince convince themselves, to convince the reader. And I think I've always failed at writing characters who are kind of closer to me because... I had I, I had that sort of sense that everyone understood how it was to be me, but I also had so much information. I had too much information about myself. So those are some of the struggles. And then it's a very, um, I hate to say it, but it's a very kind of middle-aged book in the sense that I was looking back at a time when I was younger and I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me um, and what was motivating me and why I, you know, why I feel I felt so estranged from this person who was me. And so it was painful, but it was also very funny uh, because a lot of what I was doing was, I wouldn't say repairing, but I was going back to relationships that had ended in a very immature way or ended in a inarticulate way and being able to be open with people um, from my past and to sort of appreciate that time with them and to appreciate them as people and to, you know, let them know how much I appreciate and care about them, which I wasn't able to do before. So I think that a lot of what I do as a writer is to 
almost the the writing of a book is an excuse to explore something and that thing can be just something that you know i've often found myself trespassing somewhere and someone has asked me what i'm doing and i said well i'm actually writing a novel about this so i was just trying to find something out and i think in this case i was sort of trespassing on parts of my life and i was counting in large part on the patience of and the affection of people from my past, but also certainly the patience of, say, my wife and my family um, to, uh, you know, that there were certainly times when I was writing the book that I felt like I wasn't, it wasn't painful, but I sort of wondered, am I engaging in this conversation, say, with an old girlfriend in order to write my book or to find the story, or I'm just allowing the book to, to excuse bad behavior on my part? Um, so that was one, one question I had. So it was sort of, it wasn't, I kind of went back with, with a sense of amusement and, and curiosity and sort of, um, a, maybe a fair amount of shame for some things that I had done in the past, but just trying to own them and trying to, um, you know, not be overly embarrassed is sort of, uh, a, a really positive experience and just about everything that I did with this book that interacted with my real life scared me a lot. And I learned that that fear was a little bit paranoid that people were ready to have those conversations. So it was, it was really, you know, I felt like I was growing up as I was writing it in some ways. It's interesting too, though, cause it's such a um, personal, you know, as you say, trespassing, you know, adventure, wandering around through your own past. It's quite a personal thing. And then you're going to put it in a book form and put it out there for people to read. Was that, did you have any anxiety around that at all in the sense of here I am in written form? How do you like me so far? Like, did you have a sort of any, any anxiety about that? I think there's some anxiety there. I think, you know, as I was talking about uh, revising a book, you know, this, this is a book where I, I sort of assumed that a lot of things that are in the book now I would take out. I felt like it was necessary to, engage with this real real people in my life and to engage with these interruptions of my writing um, as a way to get deeper into the book but I sort of assumed they would be taken out and when I realized that maybe it would be interesting this time to leave them in um, it was kind of late I think there's I guess you know I have a lot of friends who are memoir writers and sometimes they've written things that are about their families that are personal, and then they publish them. And for a long time, I just really couldn't really understand that impulse. I had a real problem with that. I mm. felt like telling a story that involves someone else um, is such an exposure. And I think I was just, I don't know why um, I made this term, but in writing this book, I started feeling like, who cares? Uh, you know, we're all people. We all have our experience of other people, um, and, and we can express that however we can. And so I think it's uncomfortable um, in, in some ways, but I think discomfort is, is the way that we grow. So I, I sort of welcomed it. I think there are other questions, though, that, that I just don't even know how to answer. You know, what is it to write about people and your experience of them and to recount experiences you had with them, I think that is okay, but it can be thorny. But then to take actual people 
and to make them do things and say things that they never said in their lives and have them interact with people who are largely fictional in a book that you write, even if you call it a novel, I think there's something profoundly wrong with that. <laughs> that's exactly what I've done. And uh, I just find it so, I don't know. It just, it, like, I, I kind of can't believe that I did that. Uh, but I, but I am glad that I did it. Like, I kind of liked the feeling of it. Um, so far, no one has gotten really angry or litigious with me. Well, that's a good start. <laughs> it's been people who feel like they should be in the book and they're not in the book enough. Oh. That they feel like they were really important to me, but it's not evident in the book. And so I have to say to them, you are important to me. But it's sort of, I'm, whenever I had a question of sort of serving a person's importance in my life or serving the actual recollection of what happened versus trying to tell the best story I could, I always went with the story. And so, you know, I'm, I am a fiction writer and I did feel like calling it a novel from the outset creates a fair amount of latitude. Yeah. Well, it is absolutely beautifully written and I, um, which didn't surprise me in the slightest. The thing I find really interesting about your writing is it's kind of sparse and rich at the same time. And I I wonder how long it takes you to craft sentences to get, you know, do they just come out like that? Or is it something that you go back over and over and are like, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. Oh, I wish I, I wish you could see what it looks like in my office now. <laughs> the fourth or fifth draft of this book. And I just looked at these four pages and there was about one sentence that was left. Right. Everything else was crossed out. Yeah. And um, it can take a long time. I think, you know, a, a really hard to understand idea in, in writing and overused one is, is voice and what a voice is. And I think that most authors have a natural voice they fall into, but, but most books have a different voice. And trying to figure that out takes a long time. So it's sort of... For me, revision a lot is just trying to figure out what belongs, and a lot of what belongs is dictated by who's telling the story. And even if it's not a first-person narrator, there's a, there's an intelligence telling the story that isn't me exactly. And figuring out the logic of that is part of it. But on the sentence level, so much of it has to do with um, context, you know, the sentences that are around it. I think I've always had this desire for the language to sort of disappear and that, you know, I used to get a lot of rejection letters that said, you know, you write beautifully. It's too bad. The story doesn't work. <laughs> um, and I felt like always that was such a backhanded compliment because it's sort of when you're wearing, say, you know, a really bright red shirt or something, a pink shirt and everywhere you go people say that's a beautiful shirt or nice shirt they don't really know what to say so language that is really trying too hard or being really beautiful often has that effect on a reader or on a critic it's just like it's showing off but it, it has to be in the service of whatever you're doing and so um i think there are there are different different books i've written have you know different sentences say with my abandonment i looked back over the books I'd written before. And I knew that that voice, which was the voice of a young girl, had to be really different than my voice. 
and I had to watch out for my tendencies. And I, and I realized early on that the semicolon, you have semicolons in Australia, correct? Yeah, we do, correct. That's what you call, that's what you, I know you have them. I don't know what you call them. Um, I realized that was my weakness. I used it all the time. Um, and so I decided in that book I would just not use them at all. And I didn't recognize, I mean, I couldn't have, have guessed what a big difference that made in terms of how momentum gathered, how logic worked, how thinking worked in that book um, was different just because of that syntactical decision. And with a book like The Night Swimmers, it's sort of closer to, um, it's closer to my own voice, I think, and closer to the way that I am as the book is closer to my day-to-day life. Uh, and I think one lesson I learned in the book was that I was taking, you know, this this ex-girlfriend of mine sent me all of the letters that I wrote to her over about eight years. And those letters were so much better than anything that I wrote during that time in terms of fiction. And I think the reason was, was that I I didn't think anyone else was going to read them except for her. I, I was trying to do a very specific thing and I was trying to be honest and I was trying to describe things in my life. Um in a compelling way to her, but I wasn't too, you know, I wasn't looking too wide. I wasn't seeing myself as outside of the story I was telling. It was part of my life. And I think that that sort of directness and that sort of intimacy is something that a language should have within a story. Um, and that writing a letter when you're just trying to communicate with one person is sort of uh, an aspirational way to think about writing fiction for me at this point. Well, I have to say it has been a fascinating conversation today with you, Mr. Rock. Um, And I'm going to end it with our usual infamous three top tips for aspiring writers. So if you could just tell us all what we need to know, that would be great. Okay. I wish that I had listened to them all so I would know what people say. (laughs) I would start – so I don't want to say the same things everyone says. I would start with reading – I think reading a lot and reading a lot of different things. Um, I think everyone who wants to be a writer, who wants to write, is looking all the time for sort of guideposts. And I think we tend to attach ourselves to writers and feel like that's that's the kind of writer I want to be. And I teach so many students now who are so have such a narrow vision of what they like and what they don't like. And I think as you get older and as you write more, you recognize that you can learn so much from writers who are unlike the kind of writing that you want to do. Um, I learned so much from reading Alice Munro, and I don't have a desire to write the kind of thing that she does. Um, so I'd say just reading and reading widely and, and, and enjoying it, and re- it reminds you why it is that you're interested in telling stories. Um, the second thing I would say is to... Um, is to sort of listen hard to the kind of critiques you get on your writing. If people keep telling you the same thing over and over again, to to be careful about changing that thing. I think often the things that people pick on in conversations about writing are the things that are specific to you, and they're the things that you haven't fixed yet. Mm-hmm. Like, And it's sort of, um, and when I say you haven't fixed them yet, is you haven't sort of figured out how to demonstrate to people that what you're doing is not a mistake, that what you're doing is what you do. And so kind of honing things rather than trying to fit in or rather than trying to satisfy people, um, trying to stick to your guns. I think um, I'm always so happy when I'm critical with someone 
and I think they're so wrong and they ignore me. I think being stubborn is 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 really crucial, but also just sort of you know taking time with um, the things you struggle with and trying not to look for answers. There are so many questions. Um, trying to see in the things that you write, you know, the way forward into the next thing. That's a lot of advice for my second point. I recognize. That was, it was good though. I'm, I'm with you. Number um, three. Number three. I think I would go back to, to what I was just saying. I think um, there's a there's an essay by Julio Cortazar called On the Environs of the Short Story. And at the opening, he, he quotes Horacio Quiroga. And these names are unimportant, really. Um, they're great writers. But he says, you know, you should tell the story as if it is of interest only to the small circle of its characters. There's no other way to put life into the story. And I think there's a tendency when we write, especially now when we're so used to seeking likes or you know, being online, doing different things, there's a tendency to, to be thinking ahead of an audience um, and to, to kind of think of yourself as an author, a writer outside of your story, when the best way to sort of make your world believable is to try to shut that out as much as you can and try to tell the story from inside the story. Uh, and so that's something I'm always struggling with. And I struggle with in this book too, sort of what was the inside and what was the outside, you know, were they the same thing? But for me, um, I think just, you know, living inside of another world and believing in it and conveying that world as truly as possible. Like that's, that's the goal. And that is fantastic advice. Thank you so much for your time today, Peter. Really, really appreciate it. Um, the night swimmers is available, um, obviously in the US, um, we have a lot of US listeners, so go out and get yourselves a copy. It is also available in Australia through Booktopia because I have bought myself a copy. Um, so Australians, have a go. And um, best of luck with the current project as well. Oh, thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Wow, that's cool. And I think that Peter Rock must be so far the only author we've had from Salt Lake City. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, I would say so. Like the, well, that's where he, that's where he grew up anyway. He's now based, oh, okay. he's now a yes. professor of um, creative writing at Reed University in Portland, Oregon. Um, but yeah, he grew up in Salt Lake City. So was, every time I you know, hear that, I want to sing the song from Book of Mormon. I know. And I, I, mm. I, I, I managed to restrain myself from <laughs> restraining myself. It's like on the tip of my tongue. Okay. No, no. I'll, I'll calm down. I'll sing it after we stop recording. Yeah, um, all right. So what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, well, I'm writing, uh, write a book with Al continues. And so I'm still, you know, working on my, 
on my manuscript. Um, I'll be doing some, you know, further <laughs> dotting of I's and crossing of T's for the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers Festival. Um, and I'm working on, yeah, new ideas. I've got some some new sort of pictures and things that I'm putting together. So I'm I'm. It's a weird thing of like just as ideas come to me, I'm dumping them into documents at the moment. That's what I'm doing. Probably is the oh, best way to explain yes. it. Yeah. Nice. What and which app do you use for that? Microsoft so your idea Word. dumping. <laughs> Microsoft <laughs> Word. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just, I just, if I have an idea while I'm out, I just email it to myself, and then I just put everything into a document, so okay. I know where it is. I just keep everything in one place. I'm, I like to know where things are. All right, fair enough. Mm. Good, good. Oh, all right. Mm. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontate.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at altate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontatewriter. And you, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram, and you'll find me also at ValerieKoo.com. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.